0: Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now in your word. We understand that it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is the redemption that you have ordained from before the foundations of the world to give to the world. That we might have the light of the truth, that we might know how we can be reconciled and redeemed, that we as sinners might know how we can be forgiven of all of our sin and rebellion against you, that we might know how we can be made white as snow, our sins can be removed from us and our transgressions removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Your word testifies to that truth that we would not have otherwise known. And so we thank you for giving us a redemptive revelation. And we thank you for giving it to us in a written word that could be preserved for generation after generation. And we thank you, O God, for sending your son to take our sin upon himself and to give us the pardon of our sin that we know we rightfully deserved. And we rejoice in that this morning, Father, and we are grateful to you for your grace and for your mercy, for your patience with us and for your kindness. And now as we look to your word in um, the record of Acts that your child Luke recorded for us, we pray, Father, that we would be reminded of our own salvation and the glorious work that you have done as we hear how Paul testified of his own conversion and the work that you did in him. We give you all the glory and pray for your blessing on your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts 21. Acts 21. We're continuing through this uh, historical narrative that. Uh, Luke has given to us regarding the the church and and how God has been expanding the kingdom of his son uh, by the apostles and through the power of the Spirit and and the power of his word. And so last week, uh, we looked at Paul's resolve to go to Jerusalem in obedience to the Spirit. He knew that imprisonment and chains awaited him there. And the events happened to Paul just as the Lord said they would. When he arrived in Jerusalem and went to the temple, Jews from Asia saw him and they began to accuse him of pretty much three things, of preaching against the children of Israel. They accused him of preaching against the law of God. And they accused him of preaching against the temple. And in their eyes, that was so closely related to God's presence with them that they accused him ultimately of blaspheming, blaspheming God. And so that's what they saw in Paul. They saw a blasphemer against God, and so they dragged him out of the temple. And Luke tells us that they sought to kill him. While the Jews at Jerusalem did not physically bind Paul with chains, it was their accusations that led to the Roman tribune arresting and binding Paul. So they handed him over into the hands of the Gentiles, just like the Holy Spirit said would happen through the prophet Agabus. Remember when he took uh, the belt and he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said... Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. As I was reading Acts 21 this week, I was reminded of the fact that this all happened and it was not without reason in God's sovereign purpose for Paul. This is God's plan for Paul when he saved him, do you remember? Ananias was sent to Paul and told him that he would be a chosen instrument to carry God's name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And he told Paul that it would come on a road that led to his own personal suffering for the sake of Christ's name. And so as Luke sees it, as he's writing this account, Luke sees this as all of it part of God's sovereign plan for Paul and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. None of it was a mistake. None of it was a misstep on the part of Paul that God needed to correct. As Luke sees it God is in control and that was part of the reason for Paul's resolve. Paul knew that he was in the hands of his sovereign creator no matter what happened to him and he knew this because Jesus was alive and Jesus was reigning and Jesus had appeared to him and saved him and Paul knew that he would be with his Savior when his course on this earth was completed because he trusted in the one who had risen from the dead. He believed that Christ, and he knew that Christ had risen, and he knew that God was working through all of it. And I just thought, what came to my mind was, oh, that God would plant that in us. That God would plant within our hearts an understanding of the gospel so deeply rooted, so real and genuine as it was for Paul, that we would look at every single circumstance in our life and we would realize that none of it is a mistake. You can't look at one thing that happened in your life and think that this is a mistake that God did not intend or know would happen to me. And if we think about life in that way, and we realize that everything that happens in our life, like Paul realized, is ordained by God, that he knows what is gonna happen, imagine how that changes the way that you look at the trial before you. If you think it's a mistake or you think it's an error, you are bound to become fearful, you're bound to become uh, weak, you're bound to uh, become paralyzed by by that fear. And yet for Paul, and as Luke is recording this, all of this is happening just as God ordained. And so when it comes to Paul's ministry, in terms of carrying God's name before the children of Israel specifically, these events lead to Paul giving an informal defense in the precincts of the gospel. That's what we're going to look at this morning in Acts 22, 1-29. Be- because of these events and his arrest by the Roman Tribune, and being bound in chains, Paul is given this opportunity to give a defense to the Jewish people in regards to why he is doing what he is doing and and to point them to Jesus Christ. And so as you go through Acts now in this new section all the way to the end of Acts 28, you're gonna see that Paul will go on trial four additional times, but before the Gentiles and their kings. That'll happen in chapter 22 verse 30 to 23, verse 10, chapter 24, verses 1 to 23, chapter 25, 6 to 12, and chapter 25, 23 to chapter 26, all the way until Paul ultimately is taken to Rome to testify before Caesar. And so none of this is a mistake. All of this provided Paul with an opportunity to testify of the grace of God and to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles and their kings as well. But this morning he's speaking before the children of Israel. And the way he explains it in verse 22, verse 1, is he says he is making a defense before them. So in brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. So this is This means he is going to respond to each of the accusations that were leveled against him. Okay, so here's what we're going to read. So when it comes to preaching against the children of Israel, Paul is going to highlight his past, and he's going to say that he himself is a Jew. In verses 1 to 5, this is going to be part of his defense. When it comes to preaching against the law, Paul is going to speak of his conversion by the lawgiver in verse 6 to 16. And then when it comes to the accusation of preaching against the temple and God, Paul is going to speak of his calling from God to him while he was in the temple to preach to the Gentiles, verses 17 to 21. So that's. That's what we're going to look at in Paul's defense here. Now, before we read his defense, we're looking at, we ended last week at verse 36. So in verse 36, Paul is attacked by the Jewish mob. He's chained. He's arrested. Verse 37, the tribune thought all of the commotion around Paul was because of a certain Egyptian. So you see that in verses 37 to 40. Um, He says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia A citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And so, this tribune thought Paul was an Egyptian who had appeared three years earlier, this Egyptian was claiming to be a prophet and he led a band of followers out to the Mount of Olives and he told them, wait there until at his word of command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down and then all of Israel would be able to rush into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman garrison and take possession of the city. And of course, that didn't happen. Josephus the Jewish historian tells us Felix the Roman governor sent a body of troops against them some were killed others were taken as prisoners and the rest were dispersed and the Egyptian himself vanished was never seen again and you could see that the people then felt duped and they were upset and they were really disillusioned and the Tribune thought Paul was that Egyptian this is why when he speaks to him in Greek And he he says, Do you know Greek? He's shocked. And Paul says, Well, I'm actually a Jew from Tarsus. So the tribune thought he was that Greek person, and that all of the commotion revolved around the fact that the Jewish people wanted to kill Paul, this Egyptian who had returned. But of course, Paul says, No, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a very well-known city, and he asks the Tribune to speak to the people, and so Paul gives his defense. And so here is the defense that he gives them. Very politely, he addresses them. He stands, motions with his hands, and I want you to picture here Paul is bloodied, he's beaten, he's torn up. He's not wearing a suit. He's not clean. He's not well-groomed. He is actually a picture of one who has suffered much. As we've been going through Acts, we've read of it. Paul was not some suave eloquent stature of a man that would stand up there that demanded that you respect his appearance. Just like our Lord, it says when when he came, he was not something that people would look to behold. We had a suffering Savior, a suffering servant who was crucified and killed and a crown of thorns on his head. And he was bloody and beaten and bruised and ultimately put to death. And when Paul is standing there before the Jewish people and he's giving the defense of his ministry, just remember that Paul had just been beaten. And so when he's standing before them, he is standing before them as a picture of one who has suffered much. And this is his defense. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, For you will be a witness for me to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul begins his defense, and this becomes very important as we go forward in understanding this passage he begins his defense by saying he's a Jew, but he's not just in the ordinary sense of being a Jew. He's born into a Jewish family, but Paul notes that he was also raised in the city of Jerusalem. He's raised in the very city in which he is being condemned. Paul's parents sent him at a young age to Jerusalem so that he could be educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee and a teacher of the law. And Gamaliel, if you remember from back in Acts 5.24, remember when the apostles were arrested and they were thrown in prison and the Holy Spirit came and released them from prison? And rather than stopping to preach, what did the apostles do? They went back into the temple and they began preaching again. And all of the council and the elders of Israel were trying to figure out what to do And they wanted to kill the apostles because here they are preaching again after we told them not to preach. And it was Gamaliel who stood up and gave them the counsel and said, be careful what you do for them. For if you are fighting against them and this is of God, you will not be able to stop them. And ultimately, what did they do? They listened to the counsel of Gamaliel. So Gamaliel is not just an ordinary teacher and a Pharisee. Gamaliel is someone who is respected and honored among the people as a teacher. And so when Paul is saying, I was raised in this city, Jerusalem, and I was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, they would have understood that Paul was someone who was well-versed and thoroughly trained in the law according to the traditions of his people, strict manner of the law of their fathers, Paul was carefully taught and trained under. And furthermore, Paul goes on and he explains to them that he was not only a Jew outwardly, but he was also like intellectually, that is, or just by name. Paul actually took his Judaism and his religion to heart. He says he was zealous for God, he tells them, just as you are. Paul was passionately jealous for God, for his authority, for his honor. He was passionately jealous for the holiness of God's people. And in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, Paul tells them, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, In Galatians 1.14, he says he was advancing in Judaism beyond many people of his own age among his own people. So zealous was he for the traditions of his father. And so Paul is speaking to them, not as an outsider, but he's saying, I was very much a committed Jew, just like you were. And he, and he further highlights this by telling them how in his zeal for the traditions of his father, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest, he says, the whole council of elders can bear me witness From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. To such an extent, he says, I actively opposed the Christian gospel and I was consumed with rooting out Christians, both men and women from Israel. And he would bring them in chains to Jerusalem to be punished. And why would Paul do this? Why would Paul do this? Well, those, as a Jew, from a Jewish perspective, those who belonged to the way believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah that he was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and was at the right hand of the Father. And that the only way to God was through Jesus Christ alone. That's what you and I confess this morning. From a Jewish perspective, when someone says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And as Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. That is blasphemy. And the reason it is blasphemy from a Jewish sense is because Jesus could not be the Messiah because a crucified Messiah was contradictory to God's law. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So to believe on Jesus as a crucified Messiah for a Jew is to defile the land, and you need to purge such a one from among the people and, and you should purge those who follow such a one. This is what God had told them to do in his law. Purge the evil from your midst. And so Paul, being zealous for the traditions and customs of his father, being zealous for the law, being zealous for his identity as a Jew, being one who in fact excelled in his religion believed that he was doing a service to God by going to Damascus and bringing Christians back to Jerusalem to be punished. He was protecting the way to God as any Jew would be zealous to do, and more so. I want to remind you of this that all of those who oppose jesus christ as lord and savior whether jew or gentile oppose him as messiah because they do not they believe ultimately that he was just a cursed man put on a cross to die and nothing more You don't have to be an Israelite to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Gentiles reject him just the same. And if you're not in Christ, I submit to you that you're not in Christ and you too have your own religion and you have your own law and you have your own God and you have your own zeal and you have your own way of the traditions of your father or your own traditions that you have set before you as a path to follow because you think that by keeping the law, by being righteous, by being good, by going to church or by not going to church or whatever it is you set before yourself, you have set it before yourself because you think that this is the way that I ultimately will be redeemed, and this is the way that I am to live my life. That's exactly how Paul looked at his life. He looked at his life, and he thought, as he evaluated it, I am doing everything right. I'm raising my family correctly, if he had one. I'm going to services regularly. I'm praying I'm reading my Bible, I'm working my job, I'm making money, I'm putting it in the bank, I'm building a nest egg. My life is looking good and it's looking, it's looking excellent. I'm excelling in all of these areas. I've advanced in my corporate pursuits. I've, I'm reaching the top and I'm, I'm, I'm just about to have everything that I need to have in life and have it all in order. And I don't need anything else. What happened? What happened to Paul? If you're a Christian here this morning, what happened to you? Or did it? What happened to you to change your mind as you look at the world to make you see the world differently? Or do you? Do you see the world before you and the path before you? Do you see it differently than the way that you once saw it? Has your perspective on life changed to such a point that you can no longer think about those things that you you used to pursue and pursue them with the same vigor and same force? Have Have you been transformed? Because Paul was. Israel's leaders made it clear that this Jesus was a lawbreaker, a false messiah, a blasphemer who was cursed when he was crucified and hung on a tree. Why was Paul now preaching about Jesus in the temple? Was he not preaching against God's law by preaching that one is saved by God's grace through Jesus the Messiah? As one who was trying to live according to God's law as best as one could, Paul came to see that he was actually the one opposing and persecuting the lawgiver himself. Preaching Jesus is not preaching against God's law, it is actually preaching the fulfillment of it. And this is really what is at the heart of the gospel, isn't isn't it? God's law says that the wages of sin is what? Death. God's law says the soul that sins shall what? Die. But Christ came to take the punishment Of the sinner that we deserved, and to give us a righteousness which the law demands that is completely foreign to us. And so, as sinners, we have broken God's law, but Christ has kept it on our behalf, just as God promised that he would do. And so, Christ came to rescue sinners from the corruption of their sin and the judgment of death that awaits the law-breaker. And so Paul turns his attention in verses 6 to 16 to his conversion. Whereas his conversion account in Acts 9 is given by Luke to confirm his apostolic authority and his ministry, Paul gives them a first-person account here, like he'll do in Acts 26 as well, because he wants to convey to them, these Jews, the radical change that he experienced on his way to Damascus. He wants to invite them to reevaluate how they see him and ultimately how they see the gospel about the glorified Jesus Messiah so that they might be saved. And and I and I submit that to you this morning if you're here and you don't know Christ as your savior, I want you to listen to the testimony that Paul gives to them and I want you to reevaluate the way that you view Jesus. Just stop for a moment and go take all of those things that you think that you know about Jesus in your mind, the things that you have formed by your own perspective and your own life and your own law. And I want you to hear Paul's testimony so that you can reevaluate who is this Jesus and what did he come to do? Because at the end of the day, that's the question. Who is he? What did he come to do and what did he accomplish? Because if he did what he had come to do and accomplished what he said he had come to accomplish, your response to him can only be one response. And it's the response that we see the Apostle Paul have here. And so here's what Paul says to them. This is the truth before us today today. Here's what, before we get there, here, let me just read what one more thing Paul said in Romans 5, 8 to 10, because this kind of summarizes his perspective before we look at his conversion. He writes to the church in Rome in Romans 5, 8 to 10. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That's how Paul understood it. And so in verse 6, He says he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians at noon, which means at noon, the sun is what? It's at its brightest. And he says, a greater light from heaven shone around him. And it overwhelmed the light of the sun, and it overwhelmed him. You could think of this as the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament of the lawgiver. Do you remember when Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments and the glory of the Lord. He, he, he sees the backside and just catches a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. And what happens when Moses comes down? His face is shining brighter than the sun, just from that little exposure. And so Paul is saying this greater light, while I was on my path to do what I had wanted to do, the glory... Of this light shone around me and he says I could do nothing at that moment but he says fall to the ground and he's in terror that's what happens when you are confronted with the risen Savior some want to present Jesus as a weak Jesus and a passive Jesus and a mushy Jesus that's so how I think of it. So he's a mushy and malleable, and he's just such a sweet guy. He's so nice, he's so, he loves me so much, and he's just wonderful. Just someone I wanna hang out with and run down the beach as we go arm in arm and we skip down and listen to the waves, and we just kinda stroll through life together, me and Jesus, my buddy. Do you remember my buddy? That My buddy, my buddy, right? That, that's how people think about him. Just Jesus is just so lovely. This is not the Jesus that you're confronted with when you are confronted with the Lord of glory. When you are confronted with the one who created the universe by the sheer proclamation of his word, he spoke it into existence by saying, let there be, and there was. This is the Jesus who confronts him when Isaiah goes to And he sees the glory of God in the temple. Do you remember Isaiah 6? The train of his robe filled the temple with his glory. And Isaiah says, woe to me. He says, I am undone. This is what happens when you come to know Jesus for who he is. He is the Lord of glory. And Paul is confronted by Jesus and he falls to the ground like Isaiah and he says in his heart, no doubt, I am undone. And a voice accompanies this glory and it speaks to him. And the voice says, Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? It's a question you can put your name in there. If you're not in Christ, I'm just picking a name here. Joe, Joe, why are you persecuting me? Why are you opposing me? Because that's ultimately what it is. To oppose Christ, to oppose Christ's people is to oppose Christ himself. To oppose his gospel message is to oppose the Lord of glory. And Paul answered, and he said, who are you, Lord? He sees that this is an authority unlike any other And he recognized that this was the voice of one who was worthy of his respect and praise and honor. And when he received the answer, the answer was, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And Saul was at that moment compelled to reevaluate everything that he held to so dearly. At that moment, Paul was confronted with his sin, his law breaking. He was confronted with his own blasphemy against the risen Lord. He was confronted with his own rebellion against him. He was confronted with the emptiness of his own merits and how he saw himself as an And now he saw himself as an enemy and persecutor of God, God's Messiah, and God's people. Beloved, if there is one who justly deserves to be under God's covenant curse, it's not Jesus, but it's you and me. If there's one who deserves to be cursed and hung on a tree, it's not Jesus. It's you and me. This is what Paul came to understand Jesus is full of glory. I am full of shame. Jesus is innocent. I'm guilty. Jesus is the way to God. I'm in spiritual darkness. Jesus is from above. I am from below. You see, this is why when Paul saw this, He says, when I saw this Jesus, verse 11, he says, I could not see because of the brightness of that light. I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into darkness. This was a way of Paul recognizing that he was the one under the curse of the lawgiver. deuteronomy 28 verse 28 to 29 says the lord will afflict you with madness blindness and confusion of mind this is the judgment against israel if they violate the covenant you shall grope about at noon as blind people grope in darkness but you shall be unable to find your way, and you shall be continually abused and robbed without anyone to help. Isaiah 59.10 says, We grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among the vigors as though we were dead. And so Paul who once thought Jesus was accursed, justly condemned and discredited as the Messiah, realizes and believes that Jesus was cursed, but he was cursed for him in his place. That's what it means to be converted unto Christ. You are given a new heart, new eyes, a new life, such that you turn from your own merits to the merits of Christ. You turn from your self-dependence to dependence on Christ alone. You turn from self-exaltation to the exaltation of Christ, from fear to love. And you do this by faith in Christ alone. As Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about the veil as a Jew being over his eyes, and he talks about that veil still lying over the hearts of the unbelievers. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, when he heard this, unlike the people who were with him, he responded, he said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And then he says, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, He came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a witness from him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so Paul is saying, look, I was like you. I was a, a Jew committed against Christ, against the gospel, against the Messiah, and he came to me and he saved me and he converted me. The lawgiver himself came and took my sin. And this is what he's telling them. And they, I think, would have thought of Isaiah 6, the Shekinah glory and so that leads him to his final point of defense because not he was not only preaching not he was not preaching against the children of Israel he is himself a Jew he's not preaching against the law of God it's the law of God that Jesus came to redeem him in fulfillment of and he says he was not preaching against the temple of God either he was not blaspheming God Because God is the one who himself came to him while in the temple. That's what he says in verse 17. He says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord, that's what he means by him, this same Lord of glory, Jesus, he was saying to me in the temple, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And and then he says, And then I said, Lord... They, they will, certainly they will, because they saw, this is what he's, ta- this is what he's saying in verses 19 and 18, in, in essence. He's saying, they saw me persecute you and the Christians. They, they saw what I did to fight against the gospel. Certainly when they look at me now, I'm going to have some kind of credit with them. When they see the change that happened to me, they're going to believe. They're going to believe because they see the change that happened to me. That's what he's telling them. He says, Lord, they know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So when they look at me, they're, they're going to wonder what happened. And the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying, this was not my plan. I desired to stay here and to preach to you But what is happening to me right now as I stand before you bloodied and beaten is exactly what the Lord said would happen. You would not believe my testimony about you. And so this is what he's, he's telling them. God in the temple called me and told me to get out of Jerusalem because you wouldn't accept my testimony and that is exactly what is happening right now. This is why he sent me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He had a heart for them and a desire for them, but they didn't wanna hear. I was once where you are now today A faithful Jew opposing God's people and his Messiah, but by God's grace he saved me. And I stand before you as one in chains because of the hope of Christ and his resurrection for the Jew and Gentile alike. And I tell you that right now. I tell you, I was once where you are today, a sinner in darkness, living in sin, living according to the desires of my flesh and wanting nothing to do with God. Wanting everything to do with this world and the things of this world. But by God's grace, he saved me. And beloved, that needs to be our testimony to the world. Don't forget where you were before Christ saved you. And so their response is exactly the response that Jesus said they would have. Because up to this word, Luke says, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So, listen, I'll close with this, but we're living in a culture that has its way and its religion set before them. And they do not want to hear of a Messiah who calls it into question. They do not want to hear of a God who says, a man is a man and a woman is a woman biologically. They do not want to hear a God who says marriage is between a man and a woman. They do not want to hear that life begins in the womb. They do not want to hear that God will judge the adulterers and fornicators and sexually immoral. The culture in which we live in does not want to hear a truth that contradicts or counteracts their zeal for their religion which is why you are seeing that things happen in this world the way that they are happening because the world opposes Jesus Christ and when we preach the true gospel to the world they will respond short of God's grace in changing hearts like with Paul like with us up until the word that they hear That you are giving them the gospel at a certain point they will listen but then they will raise their voices and they will say away with such a fellow from the earth he should not be allowed to live this is happening more in our nation in our continent preachers of God's word and Christians are being fined and imprisoned. Do you you understand that? It says, what's happening away with such a fellow from the earth? Get that? Let's get that in our hearts and minds. This is how they view Jesus. But like Paul, Paul, We are citizens of this country. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven, but we should not fear because Christ is our savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now grateful for the testimony that the apostle Paul has given us of his life. Uh, you transformed him from darkness and into light. You brought him from death to life. You revealed to him the glory of your Son. And he responded in faith and in trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you redeemed him and saved him. And you gave him boldness and resolve to carry the gospel before the children of Israel to testify of you, Lord Jesus, before them, knowing that what awaited him was not necessarily uh, peace and tranquility, but suffering and rejection. He did not see this suffering as an excuse for unfaithfulness, but he understood that you had ordained all of these things for him. And so, Father, we pray that we would be able to see in the same light, that we as your children would recognize that you have redeemed us by the same power of the Lord Jesus Christ and authority, that we have been risen from the dead, that we have been given new hearts and new eyes to see and new ears to hear, that you have given us a new path to walk. Help us not to forget that, Father. Help us to rest in the fact that you have ordained before us every step that is before us, Nothing happens by mistake. We pray, O God, that you would help us to be bold and help us to be resolved for the truth. We pray that you would help us not to waver or to shrink back from speaking of Christ and the truth that you have spoken in your word, that we would value life as it ought to be valued, that we would value marriage as the way that you have ordained it, that we would value, O God, the truth and speak it boldly and clearly. Father, we, we thank you for your patience with us and your mercy. We thank you that you have redeemed us from our rebellion and our sin. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming that curse for us and for washing away our sin and for bringing us into your presence and into your glory for promising us a hope of a resurrection. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, because we know that you are coming back for us to take us home and to be with you. While we live here, let our zeal not be for the things of this world, but for the glory of your name. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I think a very fitting hymn is Hymn 78, Hymn 78.